Welcome to Wisconsin DNR's Wild Wisconsin Off the Record Podcast. Information straight from the source. of the Wisconsin DNR, Wild Wisconsin, Off the Record podcast. So just as a reminder for people listening, this really gives us, um, as DNR staff, and we bring partners into a good opportunity to give you a look at kind of what's happening behind the scenes um, and what we're doing on a daily basis to improve your time in the field. Um, So this one, today we've got a special episode um, to focus on what you need to know from a rules and regulations perspective um, as a deer hunter going into this season. So whether you've already been out for the archery and crossbow seasons, youth hunt, things like that, um, or you're waiting for the nine-day gun deer hunt, uh, we're going to give you everything you need to know before you head out there. Uh, Make sure you're following the rules and um, everyone will have a safe safe and successful deer hunt. So today we are joined by Matt O'Brien with DNR's Law Enforcement Bureau, and we've also got Scott Carroll with the Wildlife Management Program. So before we get started, uh, we're just going to get a brief background from the host. Matt, we'll start with you. Can you describe your position um, at DNR and kind of how it relates to what we're talking about today? Sure. Thanks, Sawyer, for uh, having us here today. Uh, So I'm the law enforcement policy officer. I touch a lot of different things, but my primary responsibilities are the rules and regulations piece, so as they relate to hunting, fishing, trapping, endangered resources, uh, including wrecked vehicles. So uh, not only do we work with our legislature and the Natural Resources Board to ensure we have enforceable laws, but we also work with the public to ensure that we're properly communicating those laws to get voluntary compliance. So a big chunk of my time is spent interfacing with the public and with our regulation pamphlet uh, drafters to ensure that we have good products out there for people to understand what they need to do to be safe and properly harvest our species. And I'm glad you mentioned interfacing with the public there, because that's, that's a theme I think you're, you're going to hear that's going to come up throughout the podcast, is opportunities that you have to get involved, to give feedback, um, to talk to DNR staff. So I'm glad, glad you highlighted that. Uh, Scott, how about you? Yeah, so like Matt, uh, my job is primarily rules and regulations based. I represent the Bureau of Wildlife Management, so anytime that a rule change needs to be made uh, for the Bureau, whether it's hunting or trapping, I see that project through uh, for to get our you know natural resources board to approve a, a new rule change that goes all the way up to the governor and then becomes part of administrative code. Additionally, I also oversee our, uh, our regulations pamphlets, uh, making sure that the most accurate information is put into those pamphlets and then they're printed out every year so everybody can have them while they're out in the field. And Scott, I think talking about your position is a perfect segue. Um, I mentioned we're going to talk about what you need to know as a hunter going into the season this year, but I thought it'd be good to take a step back, um, and we've got the two right guys at the table to talk about this today, but um, talking about how regulations are set in Wisconsin uh, relative to natural resources, how rules are made, um, and how where it starts um, and what happens in the middle um, until it gets into that regulations packet that you're seeing out in the field or whether you're using the app, the, the rules that you're seeing on there. So. Scott, can you maybe give an overview of how regulations are set in Wisconsin? Yeah, so um, there's 
I think it confuses people quite a bit because we have statute and we have administrative code. And uh, for the department's sake, we deal primarily with administrative code. Uh, but we also have to give, be given authority in statute by the legislature to promulgate rules, administrative rules. So everything that we do from a rules perspective, we have to be, have been given that authority by the legislature to say this is a rule that they wish the department to, or to have the authority to oversee. So with an administrative rule change, typically, there's two different ways that we can do this, through an emergency rule and a permanent rule. An emergency rule is a more abbreviated version to get um, uh, a rule in place for the year. It's a lot faster. It, uh, you have to show some uh, sort of information that the public health, safety, or welfare is necessary to promulgate these rules because administrative rule like statute, it's meant to, it's a process and it's not meant to take time. It's not meant to be something that is, you know, quick is done overnight, but with an emergency rules, it can typically be done in about a couple months because there's something really important that has to be put in place uh, for, you know, to help protect our state resources. And, but the nice thing about emergency rule is that it's also short. It doesn't last forever. It typically lasts about 150 days without any extensions. So really, um, when people see an emergency rule, it's going to be a faster process, but it also has an end date in mind. Uh, in contrast to that, a permanent rule is something that takes a lot longer to put in place, but it's also like the, uh, the name says, it's permanent. So it's not something that we have to come and update every year. Uh, once it's in code, it's in code until we change it. So, you know, the process typically goes uh, with the department creating a new, uh, you know, administrative code or rule change is we have to um, come forward with a scope statement. And that scope statement needs to be approved uh, through multiple channels. It's got to be approved first by the governor, then to our natural resources board. Uh, but what a scope statement essentially does is it gives a very vague outline of what the department would like to have done. Um, and we have to show that we have the authority to make that change. Uh, but so but we can't really write any rule language down until that scope statement's been approved. Uh, once the scope statement's been approved, we then go forward and we start drafting the rule, actual rule language. Uh, depending on if this is an emergency rule or permanent rule, we will hold a public hearing either before or after the promulgation of that rule. So really, if it's an emergency rule, since it's such an abbreviated timeline, we hold a public hearing after the fact, but uh, there will be additional opportunities for public input always at our natural resources board, whether it's a scope approval or the actual rule approval. So, um, you know, this is a permanent rule, the scope's been approved. We start drafting that rule language, we hold a public hearing prior to bringing it to our natural resources board for their approval. Once we have um, their approval, we can then go forward with getting the rule finalized, which again, still has to go through legislative review and also uh, have the governor's approval as well. So typically a permanent rule can take a year and a half or upwards to from its inception to when it's actually in finalized in administrative code. So can you talk about maybe, are there differences in the process to from getting an emergency rule approved and a permanent rule approved? You mentioned the timeline is a little longer with a permanent rule. Is that not the case with the emergency rule just because sometimes it may be more needed on a short basis or... Yeah, definitely. So uh, a lot of times, like for instance, we shorten the grouse season this year through an emergency rule. It only applies for this grouse season. It doesn't apply for 2019. But uh, the fact that uh, we came to our board with some numbers in, the, I believe, the June hearing, they were concerned about this. So we they asked the department to move forward with an emergency rule. 
So essentially, we would we came back the next month uh, at the next meeting with a scope statement, and um, once that was approved, then we moved forward with the emergency rule, actual getting that approved. And really, it's because we have to make some sort of uh, you know verification or, or prove that it's necessary to be done, uh, you know, in a short period of time for you know for whatever reason that might be. But it's a, it's a more stringent process, I believe, to get an emergency rule. You have to meet certain qualifications that aren't just like we want to say, uh, I don't know, change what a hunter wears or, or what they're doing out in the field. It's something that has to be done in place by a certain time frame uh, or else it would really be a moot point. Mm-hmm. Matt, anything you want to add there? Well, I think at Scott, as you were talking, a couple things come to mind that the public would probably benefit from. The, the first question is, uh, yeah, how do we get all these ideas sort of funneled to us? And I think... Um, I know from my seat, we certainly encounter wildlife biologists or conservation wardens in the field that sort of detect some issues that say, hey, uh, we might need to consider a regulation change here, and we've got an internal process to look at those and determine if they're a, a statewide matter. But for probably most importantly is the Conservation Congress spring hearings uh, process, which is where you know, every spring in April, uh, the department's partner, the Conservation Congress, sources these ideas from the public. Uh, by and large, I mean, if I sit down and look at the regs pamphlet, I see a lot of ideas in there just in my time that I know came from uh, sportsmen out in the field. And I bet you if we look back in time, a, a very large chunk of those are coming from the public themselves. So I, th- that's the beauty of that Conservation Congress process uh, through the spring hearings is we're really getting that sort of grassroots ideas about what hunters want to see from their seasons and from their state agencies. The other piece that I just want to touch on, because I, I, as I was listening to your long discussion about rules, which it is a process, uh, I know that what's difficult for me, and I'm sure it's difficult for members of the public, is, is the timelines, right? So sure. uh, for people like Scott and I, what we're going to be working on here in the next few months are the things that have to do with next year's deer season. So th- this season isn't even really done. And from our perspective, the way our, our roles are, we already have to be looking forward. So... Uh, and I'm just starting to think through some of the timelines. You know, if we want to have the regulations in place for a season, we, we try our hardest to make sure that those regulations are done and locked up before a season starts. But then you back up, and I think we usually have the regs pamphlets done around June. July, yeah. June, July. So we have to have all the changes done by then, and the drafting of those pamphlets takes two or three months. So by the time you step it further back, um, we've always sort of got to be a year, year and a half in front of where we want to end up, which is really a challenge. I mean, as everybody knows in this day and age, technology moves so fast and, and life moves so fast that uh, uh, trying to be a year and a half out, it kind of seems like forever. Uh, but uh, I know that's always my challenge, and the public hears about things. They say, oh, I heard that's changing. Well, it, it doesn't quite change until next year. And, right. uh, just because there's such a process involved, partially because, as you mentioned, we want that public input uh, because we don't want to be making rash decisions. We want those decisions to have good scientific underpinnings and be supported by our regulated public. Well, absolutely. We'll be taking stuff to the Natural Resources Board in the next couple months that'll be over for 2019 or beyond, really. So it's it's not, we, you know, as the department, we don't like to throw things at people at the last minute. Specifically, we like to give people, you know, have rules be effective in the springtime at the, at the probably the maximum so that we have some leeway or some time in to start communicating those changes to the public so it's not like we're just throwing things out there in September or October. That's definitely, I think, something we try to avoid at all costs. So for the people listening, as a reminder, we're talking about kind of the rule and regulation process before we get into specifically this deer season. 
Um, Scott, you gave a good example of an emergency rule um, with that grouse season. So can you explain just briefly the situation there to give people some context for why it was an emergency rule? Yeah, so um, you know, we had heard some concerns over the winter, particularly from Conservation Congress members, that uh, they thought the grouse was maybe, or the numbers were a little low this year. We do spring drumming counts uh, every April to kind of do create an estimate on how many grouse are out there for rough grouse. And we got our numbers back this year. It was down about 34%, which was lower than we expected. We still, you know, grouse, their numbers kind of go on these curves and we still expected it to be on an upward trajectory. Um, you know, there was some concerns, some neighboring states had some instances of West Nile in their grouse populations. And I think, you know, the concern was brought to the board to basically say, you know, something might be going on here. I think for the sake of the grouse population, we need to take action for this year and, you know, protect them a little bit more. And the board came back and asked the department to move forward with an emergency rule that would be in place uh, to shorten the grouse season for this year. Ultimately, you know, through public input, I think it, the, you know, even the board suggestion changed. It was initially brought forward through, uh, I think the board had suggested November 30th. They ended up compromising, I think, December 31st. So even throughout the even emergency rule process, there's still opportunities for public input. Mm -hmm. And we really encourage everybody to, uh, you know, check out our website for our public meetings. I, I know a lot of these things are posted, uh, you know, our rule changes, especially emergency rules, are covered quite a bit by outdoor media. Um, there's other ways, you know, sign up for a gov delivery list. Uh, there's multiple ways for people to be informed and we really encourage people to uh, come in and, and participate, whether it's, you know, even if you can't make a hearing, providing written comment provides just as much input and, you know, our, they treat everything equally. So you don't have to be there in person to provide your opinion on, on matters. And we collect everything and we aggregate it and we send it to our board for them to make their decision based off that input. Yeah, and I think Wisconsin is pretty remarkable in the amount of public input that we solicit and welcome, and, and really the ability of that public input to transition itself uh, into the final product. And uh, I think a big mark of that is the compromises that come about. You know, when you're able to source all these different viewpoints uh, from what does this regulation mean in Ashland County, what does it mean down in Racine, uh, you know, Wisconsin, uh, although we're perhaps not the largest geographic state, certainly seems to have a lot of uniqueness throughout its various areas, and the things that sportsmen are experiencing in those areas are different than other areas of the state. Uh, and as you mentioned, those public input opportunities, not only the formal ones associated with rules that all agencies have, but our specific uh, opportunities with the Natural Resources Board, with the Conservation Congress at the spring hearings, where a lot of our rule changes yeah. also go through. Uh, and then as we saw recently, there's always additional opportunities, even with the legislature, to have uh, yet more public input, all with the goal of really trying to foster uh, a compromise that's going to be the best regulation moving forward for the greatest percentage of citizens. Mm -hmm. And for people listening who may be thinking to themselves, well, I thought this was about deer. Why are we talking about grouse? The reason I wanted Scott to give background there is to hopefully give you some context as to what is an example of why an emergency rule would be brought forth and approved? Um, so hopefully that gave you some more background. Matt, can you give some brief background on an example of a permanent rule and maybe what that process may have looked like? Right, so the permanent rule process, as I uh, mentioned uh, earlier, we get a lot of our suggestions from the Conservation Congress. So we get those in the form of those spring hearing questions, our department staff. Uh, look at those and, and try to assess you know, whether or not um, those are going to fit well uh, for our context moving forward. 
Uh, so our permanent rule process is going to come out through the Natural Resources Board really in uh, about that December range, I think, is when we submit our yep. questions. Uh, for April, then we will actually have the questions on a questionnaire during the spring hearings. Uh, those will move forward with the input. Uh, we'll take those back to the board, try to figure out what we uh, are comfortable keeping or need to modify or have any compromises there. And then uh, we'll send them off to the legislature for the review. Uh, the trick of all that is that that really turns into a, what's a multi-year process. By the time you know we start in December of, uh, of an even-numbered year and can get it through all the review periods to get done in time before the next year, it, it might be a two-year process. Uh, but I think that's where we get a lot more of the well-vetted public input and a lot of those publicly sourced ideas. So uh, that really is the, the beauty of the partnerships that we have associated with that. And uh, I'm sure this fall we'll have uh, yet another host of issues that have come up. I know the Congress has forwarded their uh, request to the Fisheries and Wildlife Management Bureaus about uh, things that have had good statewide support from their end. So we'll take those back out and, and see what the public has to say about it. So the summary there, before we get into uh, some of the specific deer stuff is I just wanted to give the people listening some background, kind of emergency rule versus permanent rule, what it means for you, kind of the length that rule is on the books, opportunities that you have to give feedback, which Scott mentioned there are many. Um, I think the first step and the easiest step might be getting more connected to the Conservation Congress where you live. I think that would be a really easy way to get your, to, your foot into the door to really get involved with some of these processes. And, and we have public meetings. Um, there are online surveys and, and public input forms and things like that. So really just um, keeping an eye on the issues that, that matter to you, whether that's through the Conservation Congress or, or through using the computer or watching the news, but lots of opportunities to give feedback. Um, so now I think it'd be good to transition into the deer season. So obviously archery and crossbow seasons are in full swing. Uh, probably half a month or so away from the rut. So uh, we're starting to see people ramp up as far as getting excited about that. But I wanted to go over kind of those top five things that people really need to be aware of before they head into the woods this fall. So I thought where we'd start, um, kind of speaking with, speaking of rule changes, um, the CWD carcass movement topic is one that's been a really hot topic uh, late summer into fall. Um, there were some changes, and then those changes were rever reverted back. So, Scott, can you maybe just give some background about the process that that went through before we kind of explain where we're at now? Yeah, sure. So uh, this was all part of the governor's CWD initiative that was released back in I mean, late April, early May of this year. There was concerns, I know, uh, you know from basically from last uh, November through about June of this year, we added... Unfortunately, about 12 new counties as CWD affected, and we had some concerns. You know, this had been an issue on everybody's radar for a while. Our last, even at our Conservation Congress uh, spring hearing this year, I believe there was about 41 resolutions kind of asking the department to take additional steps to uh, reduce the spread of CWD, and I think the governor responded to that, and he um, directed the department to engage in emergency rulemaking for this year to get some uh, additional carcass transportation restrictions on the books uh, for the fall season. So what we did was we came back with a scope statement that was approved, but we also, the legislature asked us to hold an additional public hearing. The Joint Committee for Review of Administrative Rules said, hey, let's hold on, let's hold a public hearing about this. This is, you know, this is a big deal. And so we held a public hearing in the Wisconsin Dells at June, or in June of this year. We had quite a few people attend. I think it was about 30, 40 people there. You know, collected that input, 
uh, brought the scope statement to our, our board at the June meeting after that hearing. Uh, they approved that scope statement, and then we don't have a July board meeting, so the next opportunity for the board to vote on that would have been in the August, which was up in Green Bay. So from basically when the scope statement was approved through August, we're working on that rule, uh, collecting that public input, and we're presenting it to the board in the form of a packet. And uh, the board looked at that packet and they said, this looks good. Uh, they made a couple small changes to the rule uh, and they voted for approval. And you know we were all set to have that, uh, became effective October 1st. However, the legislature again, uh, was concerned or expressed some concern about this and in their capacity, the, the joint our joint committee for a review of administrative rules again stepped in and said they wanted to hold a public hearing on this. And um, it was, you know, the, we held a public hearing, I believe it was about seven hours on October 1st, uh, had a lot of public testimony, which was fantastic. Um, you know, we were there, we presented, uh, you know, the background for the rule. And at the end of that meeting, the uh, I think they voiced their uh, concern about this and voted to suspend the carcass transportation portion of that rule. So it basically does is it says, uh, you know, until the, the legislature acts on this topic, it pre prevents the department from, you know, moving forward with any other rules on carcass transportation, at least till that time, which probably be till about January of uh, 2019. But it also reverted back all of our, um, our carcass transportation rules to basically what it was in 2017. It's important because, you know, this proposed rule that got suspended, it, you know, it put some restrictions in, but it also allowed hunters to do a couple extra things that they couldn't in the past, specifically, uh, you know, relaxed our quartering uh, restrictions, and it also allowed hunters to process and leave certain deer carcass parts in the field. And it's important because we've been getting emails and questions on this that people realize is that since this rule's been suspended, that additional, you know, that leeway that we gave hunters to process a deer out in the field that doesn't exist anymore. So we go back to what it was in 2017. Essentially, you have to take all the deer parts out, uh, except, you know, obviously you can gut your deer. Uh, but then again, also it allows you to move your deer more freely than what this emer uh, emergency rule would have done this year. So you can still essentially take a deer out of a uh, CWD-affected county and self-process, take that whole deer carcass out, uh, as long as you're not going, I believe, to Door or Ashland County. Um, those are two, currently the only two counties that aren't adjacent to a CWD-affected county. So uh, pretty much, except uh, for two counties, you can move that deer out, uh, primarily anywhere throughout the entire state to self-process. There's no requirement to quarter or uh, debone that deer before you leave that county of harvest. Well, I think that's a, a good piece to just touch on is, you know, a lot of what we're looking for from CWD uh, prevention are the public to come with us on these best management practices, right? Be, be smart in what you do. Um, sort of be respectful to that long-term view of having a sustainable resource. So uh, when you're packing out those carcass pieces, ensure that they're ending up in proper landfill spaces. I cannot count, uh, you know, the number of calls that our hotline gets every year of dumped deer carcasses, whether it be on private property, uh, you know, uh, road right-of-ways, public parking lots. Uh, and uh, I understand the challenges for a lot of folks because they don't always have access to a landfill and maybe they don't have access to uh, new um, the sort of opportunities that some people have in other parts of the state. Uh, but I think our big ask there is be responsible. As you pack out that waste, uh, ensure that that ends up in our regulated streams. And we ask of that not only from the public, but from the taxidermists and the licensed meat processors uh, so that we're doing the best we can to keep the slow of that 
uh, keep the spread of that disease as slow as possible. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, as Matt said, I think our, our best expectation for handling a deer carcass is to have it go into a landfill. But people should also be aware that that might not be available to them. Um, you know, if you, you shoot a deer in a CWD-affected county, say, okay, I'm going to take it home, I'm going to process that deer, I'm going to throw it away in the garbage at my curb uh, once I'm done with it, you may find out that not all the landfills in the state accept deer carcass waste. And that that's a, causes a big problem then because then all of a sudden you've got this carcass on your hands that can't go into the proper stream of disposal and what are you going to do with it and what we don't want is it to be dumped in an area where it shouldn't be like in a roadside ditch or uh, somebody else's you know public land or anything like that so if you think you know you, you should double check with your landfill to make sure that they actually will accept your carcass waste if that's what you you plan on doing for this year and we've got a website i believe if we type in cwd carcass disposal or yeah. something of that nature there's a map that comes up i've seen it where it has all the landfills map i found that really helpful to sort of piece that together and the other thing from that is uh, i know the natural resources board uh, shared their interest that the department really put forward a strong effort to try to find a landfill solution because by and large, the vast majority of our hunters want to do their part, or they want to do what they can to help uh, protect our sporting heritage, to protect our deer species throughout the state. It's just that there aren't a lot of options. So uh, I hope that what we see from that is some really good, uh, innovative, leaning forward kind of thinking uh, that hopefully tries to, to fix this problem, to make it a little bit easier for people to, who want to do the right thing uh, to be able to get their carcass into one of those regulated streams. Yep, and, and looking at programs that we're, we're looking at ramping up right now, like the Adopt-a-Kiosk program, the Adopt-a-Dumpster program, which we're going to be sharing more kind of going into fall on that. Uh, we're working with you guys as hunters to kind of work together to find solutions to, to some of these issues. So let's put this one to bed. I don't know if you guys want to use a hypothetical or how you prefer, but it's a very interesting process that that rule went through and then it wasn't a rule and then it was that segment was taken out so what do i need to know at the very basic level regarding carcass movement this fall basic level is what you did last year you can now do this year so i, I know it's hard there was a lot of you know back and forth with this but essentially the rule that we proposed is no longer effective so whatever you did, whatever was legal last year is legal again for this year. And also, uh, you know, unfortunately that, that carcass uh, processing in the field, that went away too. So, I, you know, we don't want people confused, it, you know, but it's however you did it last year is how you're going to do it this year. Yeah, and page 28 of the deer regs uh, still spells that out about how you uh, remove all the parts from the field minus the entrails that can be left behind. Pack all that out. You can quarter it if you want to. Uh, I know some people still quarter their deer. A lot of people are probably dragging them out if they're on private property, either with the youngest person in camp or <laughs> if they have their ATV or whatever. Um, uh, and again, just do your best to make sure that those are properly disposed of. That's that's the biggest key. And for those of you that take them to uh, licensed taxidermist meat processors, etc., uh, those folks have already got the plans in place, as you know, from years past. Um, so do your part. So if I shoot a deer in Sauk County on public land, um, the deer's down, I field dress it, I'm good with leaving the entrails in the field, but other than that, I need to take the rest of that out with me. Is that correct? Correct. Okay. All right, so I hope that's clearing that up. Um, speaking from a communications perspective, it was definitely challenging for us to make sure that we were kind of keeping up with all of it. So we want to make sure that, that you guys have the info that you need to go out tomorrow um, and know that you are, you're following the rules in the field. 
So moving on from that one um, are some DMU changes, so Deer Management Unit. So do you guys want to talk about those at all? Sure. So our deer management units, essentially, you know, it's the area that you are giving your tag that that tag's effective for. They're typically county-based units. There are also some metro um, subunits that are available that you got, allow some additional opportunities for harvesting, particularly um, antlerless deer. And for this year, we have two new metro subunits, one um, around the Janesville area in Rock County, and the other one in Eau Claire, basically Eau Claire and Chippewa Falls. We also had some... Um, Metro subunits were amended this year. I know La Crosse's map was amended. Uh, Milwaukee became larger. Dane County became significantly larger than one around Madison. So um, if you hunt in those areas, check out our maps available on our either on our website or in the regulations. I believe all the metro subunits are right smack dab in the middle of the regulations. And if you're in one of those metro subunits, see what's available for you because there's there are additional antlerless tags that are that you might be able to to use. And Scott, can you just talk briefly, are those DMUs on a sort of regular review process? Is that how that came about? I'm trying to remember, I, I thought it was every few years we sort of, as an institutional matter, looked at those regulation boundaries. Yeah, um, so this was part, the, all these regulation changes were, were part of a permanent rule that was put in place. Actually, it was a permanent rule and emergency rule, so we could get it in for this year. But essentially what it looks at is, uh, we, especially we use CDOC recommendations in terms of uh, what our metro or our, our units look like. So those are county deer advisory councils, which is also open for you guys to attend and get involved with. But sorry, Scott. Yeah, nope. So we use our, our CDACs to uh, create recommendations for our deer management units. Um, I know before I came on here, I was on a CDAC and uh, Dane Counties, and we specifically mentioned that the, you know, the metro subunit for um, Dane County was kind of, you know, wasn't adequate at this point. It didn't cover a lot of even uh, the city of Sun Prairie. So we made that recommendation at the CDAC level, and then I got to come here to the DNR and see that uh, that rule change through uh, for this year. So it was kind of interesting being on both sides of it to see where that originated from and how it, it became effective at the end point. Mm -hmm. And a couple things on that one. So obviously if you hunt in one of the areas mentioned, um, absolutely this is something you need to look into, um, whether it got larger, smaller, new metro unit. But the web... We have a, a live mapping system. Um, search keyword DMU on our website. You're going to find that. The regulations, obviously, but I think a really cool new tool that we have this year is the app. Um, so that, Scott, do you want to touch a little bit on how that would relate to kind of the DMUs and, and what that would mean? Yeah, so um, the app he's referring to is the Hunt Wild Wisconsin app. It's available for free this year in uh, both the Google Play and Apple stores. So what it does is it's our... Uh, Bureau of Wildlife Management's new hunting app, and uh, it's I think it's pretty great. It will um, use, uh, there's a big mapping feature to this where essentially you'll pick your species that you want to hunt. So if you, for this instance, we're talking deer. So if you select deer and you turn your phone's GPS on, what it'll, what it'll do is it'll show the deer management unit that you're in, and it'll also tell you, um, based on your location, what the shooting hours are. So there's a lot of features in, in this app that we think are pretty great. All the regulations are available now. All our, you know, Every piece of printed information that we had available in the printed regs is now available on your phone. And what's great is that it's also available um, essentially by, regardless if you have a cell phone signal or not. So all that regulatory information is stored on your phone, so if you you know are in the driftless region, and you just your stand, you don't have a, a good cellular signal. 
You can still pull up that regulatory information there. It'll tell you, um, you know, our season dates, bag limits, everything's available for you there in that app. And that, you know, depends a lot on based what your management union is. So, um, yeah, definitely check it out if you haven't already. And we'll touch a little bit more on the app later on, but um, he mentioned iTunes and Google Play Store. You can search Hunt Wild Wisconsin. Um, go to our website and search keywords hunt app. You'll find more info, too. We've got a tutorial, all that. Um, so that's a really good really good resource, specifically with DMUs and things like that. So next, I thought we would talk about um, another pretty hot topic. This comes up pretty much every year. We, we see quite a bit of discussion here. Are there any changes to what people need to know relative to baiting and feeding in the state? Well, you know, baiting and feeding is, uh, as you said, one of those hot topics. And, uh, you know, the way that our baiting and feeding bans are structured is based on where we get test positive. So probably the most important thing for hunters to do is to consult uh, with our baiting and feeding map. It's online. It um, changes, you know, kind of frequently. If, as soon as we get a test, we want to be able to throw a... And a that's po a CWD positive test. Yes. Yep. Yep. As soon as we get the CWD positive test in, we want to be able to throw that county... Uh, inside that baiting band, so you want to keep that map updated. So it's online. Uh, if you want to navigate to baiting and feeding off the DNR webpage, you got a nice map on there that shows the baiting prohibited counties and the ones where deer baiting and feeding are allowed, subject to the two-gallon limit. We've also got some uh, fact sheets on there, and there's quite a few FAQs that are still in the deer rakes pamphlet. Uh, the challenge with baiting and feeding is you know, there's been some counties that have been in these rules for a decade. And then there are some counties where this is their first year. So, you know, from a statewide portfolio of, even with our local conservation wardens, trying to learn and, and understand what's changing in their counties, uh, it would really behoove you if you're uh, hunting in certain counties to really sit down and just say, hey, what are the rules that are going to apply where I'm at? Uh, so that map is a great reference tool, and the frequently asked questions that I think uh, we have in there uh, really do help, you know, just the, all, all the way down to the basics of, you know, what do we consider bait, which is anything that's used to attract animals, whether it be pumpkins or corn or mineral licks, uh, and then, you know, what, what isn't bait, you know, plain water isn't bait. So I think we have a, a, a pretty good assembly on there of, of what those rules are, and, uh, you know, by and large uh, in the field, uh, most people are pretty darn interested in trying to comply, so as long as you've done a little bit of legwork, and I think that app will help, so that you know what the regulations are uh, ahead of time, then then you won't be surprised by what you see out there. Yeah, definitely. We um, speaking of that, we had uh, again nine, I believe, at least nine new counties uh, that are now baiting and feeding restricted based on a new CWD positive. There's also the opportunity for counties to come out of a baiting and feeding restriction if they haven't had a CWD positive in the last three years. So we really encourage you before you head out on the, during the nine day, check that map out. You know, there's we're recording this right now in October, but by the time November comes around, there could be another county that's in. So really, uh, we update that map as soon as we can, so check it out right before you go out in the field to make sure that you know, you're know um, you not doing something that you shouldn't out in those, er in those areas. And that's a perfect example of something that does not take hardly any time at all. Um, and the, the trouble it can save you, I think, is just worth it in the long run. So uh, we mentioned search baiting on the website. You're going to find that map. You're going to find more info as to what is prohibited and allowed as far as that map mentioned water. Are there any other common misconceptions or questions that you get about baiting and feeding, Matt, you wanted to hit on? Well, I think, um, you know, the biggest part of this is cultural. Uh, you know, our staff, it's not a great day when we have to issue citations to somebody, right? Because um, I know personally, 
I don't just have a giant extra pot of money that I have sitting around just waiting to pay off a speeding ticket or, or whatever. Uh, so our staff don't like having to do that. We try as much as we can to get that voluntary compliance as early as possible. But, but there's even, there's almost like a social stigma uh, with baiting that I think is the, the toughest part uh, for individuals that um, either through lack of attention to, to what the rules were in their area or sometimes folks just intentionally are trying to get an unlawful edge uh, over their neighbors and they're, they're putting way too much bait out, um, you know, the, the toughest part when we have to have enforcement actions with them is, you know, what are other people going to think about this? What are the other people in my deer camp going to think who maybe didn't know? What are my neighbors going to think? Uh, so I, I think that's the toughest part. So um, I think my ask to the public is, you know, you know the rules. 95, 99% of our hunters out there really do want to follow them. Uh, do us a favor and don't put us in the tough position of, of having to look at enforcement action. Uh, so, you know, go ahead, take that time to learn the regulations in your area and don't cheat. You know, I mean, we have uh, uh, laws for a number of different reasons, public safety being one of the primary purposes, protection of healthy fish and wildlife populations being another. But the last sort of category are these hunting ethics, sporting ethics types laws. Uh, and those are sometimes the most difficult, not only for us to enforce, but uh, you know, to sort of implement at a field level from the public's perspective, because we're talking about fair distribution of game, uh, fair pursuit uh, against our societal standards, which change over time. So uh, we don't get as many baiting and feeding questions these days as we used to. I think we sort of exhausted all of those FAQs, and we finally got every document about as well polished as we can get uh, to put them in there. Uh, but when in doubt, uh, folks can always contact their local conservation warden who can help you know, talk to them about, hey, I've, I've got an agricultural field right next to me. Um, for whatever reason, their crop was too wet, they couldn't harvest it, so now we've got all this standing crop. And what does that mean to me uh, from a baiting situation? So. And what does that mean to them from a baiting situation? Yeah, so uh, as a general matter, anything that's part of normal agri uh, agricultural practices aren't going to be considered baiting, right? Wisconsin has a very large agricultural uh, history, right? You can't drive throughout the countryside in most of our counties without running across soybean or cornfields. Um, so as long as those are naturally standing, uh, normal, uh, normally held fields, those are good to go. Same thing with food plots. And part of the disease vectors there is that it's really distributed, right? Uh, my understanding from all the wildlife health uh, folks is that the, anytime we start concentrating that feed into a limited area is when we increase the risk uh, for CWD transmission. So that's why things like staining agricultural crops are, are not as big of a vector. And part of it is the reality that there's no way you can, uh, if, if you were limited to hunting where there's no agriculture in the state, there'd be hardly no hunting at all. Mm -hmm. So uh, any normal agricultural practices, including uh, the proper handling of, of destroyed crops or things that have experienced damages is, is still lawful to hunt over. Speaking of cultural changes, um, electronic registration, we made that switch, was that two, two, year, two seasons ago? Yeah, I think so. So any changes there that people need to be aware of at all? Uh, no changes there. I, what I've heard from both uh, the field staff and our customer service staff is using the online registration, whether that be on your smartphone or your computer at the house or cabin, uh, that that is really the way to go. It gives you enough time to be able to fill in the fields, uh, and submit that registration. And I, I tell you, from things that we're seeing out in the field, it is unbelievable the number of people who, using their smartphone, have completed their registration online 
uh, before they've even left the woods. And I think uh, there's a huge convenience factor in today's day and age where people are just struggling to, to get in an opening day because of their busy calendars that we've been able to take a little bit of burden uh, off of them uh, by giving them that flexibility. And, and the really interesting thing is uh, I know even during my field time uh, that I spend during uh, the fall seasons here, you still see uh, the bucks moving around. Those big buck contests are still an ever-present part of Wisconsin's culture uh, that hasn't really gone away uh, because of the changes to the registration system. Because th those are those are critical parts of Wisconsin's uh, sporting tradition, and it's great to see them alive and well and adapted into the e-registration era. I think that's an important take-home that that nothing has to change. I think. There are two main things that, from a communications perspective on social media, talk to my buddies, being at deer camp. The first one is um, where I hunt, I don't have phone reception, and I can't get online to use that feature. So what advice would you give them for that? Yeah, so uh, what we've generally seen uh, from a lot of people is uh, tends to be the youngest person in camp or whoever's got the most tech skill savviness who will take down uh, registration information, run out to a spot where they've got good cell coverage and then can register those multiple animals, keeping track of the confirmation numbers for each people. Or uh, you just coordinate your stops for gas uh, or if you're stopping it at a restaurant or grocery store or whatever, just coordinate those to ensure that you've got your uh, carcass tag information so you can complete your registration uh, when you get some cell service. You know, by and large, we know that most of Wisconsin has okay cell coverage, and if they're in, especially in a, an area where they maybe don't have data coverage, but then they can make a phone call, so that's an option as well. They can call into our Game Reg uh, hotline. Uh, but for some of those very remote areas of the state, uh, there might be that step of having to get to cell coverage. However, getting to cell coverage is probably going to be easier than trying to have gotten to some of our old registration stations. So um, the way I like to think about it is we made it easier for about 95% of people, but there's still 5% that is still going to have close to the old amount of work just due to the nature where they hunt. Mm -hmm. And the other part of that, too, that I typically hear is you touched on it a little bit earlier is with the electronic registration, you've ruined the culture of people meeting up at the bar or wherever uh, with the deer on the tailgate. And we really cannot stress enough that nothing needs to change at all. The only thing that really changes here is that you can register your deer anywhere with a computer or cell phone service. If that's at your deer camp and you prefer to do that, that's awesome. Hang around with friends and family. Uh, do your thing at deer camp. Um, if you want to go into town and do that somewhere, absolutely do that. I don't think there's a bar in Wisconsin that's going to tell you that you, you can't use their phone to register a deer. Great, great place for Wi-Fi too. Be at your local bar yep. or tavern. Yep, yep. And they, uh, you know, it's something remarkable is that Wisconsin's sporting heritage, in most respects, predates our regulatory agency, uh, and in a lot of respects, I think that that heritage sort of exists outside of our agency as well. Uh, the, the culture that exists in our deer camps. Uh, across northern Wisconsin, southern Wisconsin, western Wisconsin, eastern, I mean, everything's sort of different in the way that people hunt, uh, the fields that they hunt in, whether or not they hunt with deer drives, whether or not they sit all day, whether or not they have lunches. I mean, all of that culture is so far above and beyond any of the regulations that our agency has uh, that uh, that culture is, is pretty much unstoppable. It's in the hands of the, of the citizens and society to keep running. Mm -hmm. So is there anything else, kind of rules and regs-wise, for this deer season that you guys uh, want to cover or kind of make sure people are aware of? 
Yeah, so I think, uh, again, like the change was made last year, but it's, uh, you know, moving forward, it's going to be the new rules that we no longer still have to tag deer physically. And we've also officially changed the name now. Uh, it's not a tag, it's a harvest authorization. So in case you're wondering when um, you see department materials, regulations reference uh, the term harvest authorization, it just replaced the term tag because you no longer have to actually physically tag a deer. I think that's a good one to highlight. Yeah, absolutely. And we're uh, year one or two uh, into the uh, overnight placement of tree stands on state-owned land. So I just would highlight that again for uh, those of you south of Highway 64, the rule remains the same as it has for a long time, uh, which is uh, tree stands and ground blinds can be placed on DNR managed lands, but they have to remo be removed daily. North of Highway 64, we have some increased flexibility now. I think it's our second year now. Um, where you can have two portable devices per hunter per county place during that period from September 1st to January 31st. Remember to put either your name and address or your customer ID number uh, clearly identifiable on that tree stand to help us identify who's on the property or if stuff gets stolen that uh, we have sort of a, a, a ground path to follow for that. And by the same token, I think, uh, Lloyd, it's been probably maybe a decade that we've had trail camera use, maybe not quite so long, but we've allowed trail cameras on departmental lands and a good couple reminders there is uh, to put it in places where hunting is allowed, uh, ensure that your cameras don't cause any damage while they're out there, and uh, make sure you've got your name and address, customer ID number on there as well. And, and both for the cameras and the tree stands, remember that our state lands have a lot of different purposes between habitat and the variety of user bases that use them. Uh, please don't be out there trying to mow shooting lanes and cut down timbers. I mean, it's remarkable when I see some of the lengths uh, that people go through to, to try to manipulate the ground, which is fine if they're on private property, but on our state-managed lands, you know, the responsibility is that uh, you can't be destroying the trees and stuff there, just because there's a lot of different users and, and habitat purposes that that stuff serves. So be respectful of the property uh, when you're putting your stuff out there. But uh, overall, I, I think what's been remarkable through the state park uh, hunting changes back in uh, it's probably about six, seven years ago as well, up to now is that uh, hunters have done an incredibly great job at being respectful of the diverse user bases that are out there uh, because we've got cross-country skiers, snowmobilers, hikers, bird watchers, and hunters that all sort of share these spaces at different times throughout the season between September and the end of January. And uh, I'm just very proud of the hunters and always uh, being very respectful of trying to ensure that they're selecting sites that are out of view of those trails, that they're uh, safe in how they discharge their weapons so that they're not, you know, shooting rounds across existing trailheads, and that they really try their hardest to ensure that um, you know, they're taking good ethical shots so they can recover those animals and, and sort of allow for the various diverse peaceful uses. Mm -hmm. The last thing I wanted to bring up, um, and I feel like this is another maybe common question that we get, what can I as a hunter use in the field to show that I have harvest authorization? So hypothetically for deer season, what, what could I use in the field to show that I'm authorized to harvest a deer. Right, so I, uh, I would just point out that that's a great uh, segue. Uh, right at the beginning of the deer rags pamphlet, we put together a little two-page quick summary chart uh, to try to distill those 50 or 60 or so pages down uh, to, to the two-page summary. And in there, we talk about having the proper harvest authorizations, uh, and then one of the pieces is having the, the uh, correct forms of proof. So conservation wardens in the field can validate uh, your harvest authorization hunting licenses by taking a look at your conservation card if you have it. That's that plastic card. 
that you can get specially uh, issued. Uh, your driver's license as well, we have the capability to scan that and proof that against the licensing system. If you have a paper hard copy, uh, we can check that as your harvest authorization. I find uh, a lot of folks in certain demographics really like uh, the sort of security or concreteness offered by having those plain paper uh, harvest authorizations. And I've seen people print them out on cardstock and laminate them, and they're, you're free to do all of that. Um, that still lets us check your license. And last but not least, uh, as we're seeing with both the younger and older demographics, quite honestly, is the use of cell phones. Uh, so when you purchase your licenses, you get issued documentation from us right to your emails. You can save on your smartphone and display your license like that. So we're, uh, boy, I think about three years into that Go Wild system now. And uh, I, I personally have found that to just be a fantastic convenience. I know even in hunting in other states, it's sort of a bummer. I'm like, oh, i got to print off a license? you got to be kidding me. It's sort of the day and age of tech that we have now. But I, I think we've created a lot of flexibility so that you can buy your license easily, quickly, on a moment's notice, and you can display it uh, pretty darn quickly, too. Yep. So I think that's a really good place to kind of wrap up there. So just as a reminder to kind of bring it home here. So I mentioned the app, Hunt Wild Wisconsin. We mentioned Game Reg, electronic registration. You can get to it directly from that app. You can look at your license authorizations directly from that app um, if you have cell service. So that app is really intended to be a, a catch-all for all of these things. So we hope you guys are going to enjoy using that out in the field. The webpage, um, I would recommend just searching keyword deer and starting there. That's going to kind of allow you to go in the direction you'd like to, whether you want to look at regulations, uh, more CWD information, things like that. Um, obviously the regulations themselves are going to be a good resource. Matt mentioned uh, kind of those FAQs at the start. You can also find those on the app. Um, and then lastly, something we always try to hit on is, is talking to DNR staff. Um, they're out in the field. Um, they want to talk to you. They're happy to answer questions that you have. Um, so that's another really good resource that people have as well. So before we wrap up here, is there anything you guys want to kind of close with? You've got the mic, deer season, the gun season's almost starting. Is there something you want to tell hunters? Well, uh, obviously from the law enforcement perspective, just want to remind people, always be safe. Utilize those good rules of firearm safety as well as the uh, tree, st tree stand rules of safety to ensure that um, your hunt is safe and successful, right? Back to the basics. Wisconsin is proud of having a very safe season from a statistical perspective and, and uh, that is due to the hard work of all of our hunters out there, the great mentoring opportunities that we have. Uh, and that's a, another great key point is, you know, as, as part of Wisconsin sporting uh, heritage, uh, try to take someone along with you who hasn't been hunting. Uh, it's remarkable when we do these learn to hunts to see the excitement in young people's eyes and, and some adult hunters that just had never had the opportunity to be part of Wisconsin's hunting heritage. So uh, try to broaden your horizons. Think about a neighbor, a friend, or maybe a relative and see if you can uh, rekindle something in them that just gets them connected with the outdoors again. No matter uh, how you choose to hunt this season, be respectful of yourself, the resource, and be respectful of others and have a good hunt. Scott, yeah. how about you? That's a tough one to follow. It is. It's Matt did a great job. No, uh, obviously safety is number one, like Matt said. You know, what I would encourage is uh, if you have questions about rules or regulations, like like Sawyer mentioned, contact us. You know, I'd rather you give me a call or an email 
than wander and, or go into the field not knowing what you can or cannot do. We're always there and available. Um, the other thing is get involved. I think we really encourage public involvement at every step, you know, rep, going back to our rules process. Um, there's ways for you to, you know, keep abreast of what's going on currently with our rule changes. Uh, Gov delivery is a great tool. Um, you know, I've found that even prior to coming here, I would just set up a Google keyword search of uh, Wisconsin DNR and maybe rules, and you'll get daily email updates on what's, what's going on regarding Wisconsin hunting or rule changes. So there's ways to, the, you know, we, we try our best to communicate anything that's going on in terms of rule changes or, or regulations, but there, you know, we, we rely on hunters to, you know, on their own to kind of find some of this as well as much as we can do. So, you know, get involved in your, you know, come to a board meeting or provide written comments, get involved in a CDAC, uh, attend a Conservation Congress meeting. If you have an interesting idea that you want to see as a regulatory change, put it forward as a resolution. As, as Matt mentioned before, you know, we're going to be, be bringing forward another round of uh, potential rule changes from our spring hearings this year, and the vast majority of them are brought up by, um, you know, hunters not from DNR staff. So there's a way, it takes a little time, but if you want to see something changed, uh, get, in, get active and get involved. Mm -hmm. And I don't have much to add to that. Those were both excellent. The only thing I would say is that with all the new social media, um, and if you haven't checked out our most recent podcast, Communicating with Hunters, we had Vortex and Backcountry Hunters on for that one. Um, the thing I would stress, Scott mentioned, get involved, give feedback. Um, a Facebook comment on one of our posts that says this rule is stupid really doesn't do anything for you or for us. Um, you need to be going to the meetings, submitting official feedback. Um, while it, it's funny at the time to say stuff like that, it's really not going to help you kind of get to where you want to go. So I would really look into those kind of official ways that you can get feedback, going to meetings, getting involved with CDACs, um, and things like that. So thanks again for joining us today. I think we covered a lot. I'm hoping this is going to be useful for people um, at Deer Camp. So you can find this podcast. Um, you can also find our new web series that covers a lot of this info too at our homepage, dnr.wi.gov, keywords Wild Wisconsin. You can find the podcast on our YouTube channel. Search TV on YouTube. And then we also have iTunes and Stitcher channel. So if you have an Apple phone, iTunes might be your preference. Um, Android, we have Stitcher as well. Those are both Stitcher is an app you can download to listen to podcasts. So Search Wild Wisconsin off the record in either of those, and you're going to find that. Um, and then just remember to kind of check out our social media pages. That's really what, what we're seeing as a, a really key tool in sharing this information. So search Wisconsin DNR on Facebook, Instagram, um, Twitter, and all that. So uh, we're working hard to make sure that you've got the info you need. We hope this gave you some context as to how rules are made, different types of rules, kind of where we're at right now, um, and how you can give feedback. So. Thanks for joining us. Uh, thanks to Matt and Scott, and we will see you next time on the Wild Wisconsin Off the Record podcast.